Hello, I'm Karsten Knox. This is Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast. This month on the podcast, I'm asking cinephiles about their picks for the best films of the 2010s. On this episode, I'll speak to Dave Howlett. He's a cartoonist, he's a manager at Strange Adventures Comic Book Shop in Halifax, and he co-hosts the podcast Living Between Wednesdays. As a lifelong comic book fan, Dave appreciates what Marvel is doing, but his interests in film, I think you'll find, are a lot broader than just that. I know from listening to your podcast that it's not all comics. It's also comic-related pop culture and films. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I have spoken to you before about your uh, comic-related and superhero-related interests in terms of films and fantasy films. So I am super interested in hearing what are your favorite films from the past 10 years. I, I figure I can guess at some of them, but I don't want to. I want to hear what, you, you what you've come up can. with. You probably can. Although, like I should say, they're not all genre. They're most, there's a lot of genre on here, probably more than most people's. But, you know, that's just who I am. That's what I like. But, like, it's not all, like, fantasy, horror, superhero stuff. So there'll be a little bit of a mix, hopefully. All right. Well, let's get to it. How many movies on your list? Uh, it looks like it's about 13 here right now. Uh, okay. So I guess first, uh, I, maybe should I save my favorite for towards the end? Sure. Okay. Well, uh, in the superhero genre, if we, we might as well just get that out of the way. There's certainly plenty to choose from. But mine would probably still be Captain America, the Winter Soldier. That's the one that spoke the most to me as like, not just as a Captain America fan or a Marvel fan, but also just a fan of like 70s conspiracy thrillers. And I really like Robert Redford and also really big fan of the Trouble Man soundtrack. So there was, and I like the Falcon, uh, like Arnim Zola. So there's a lot of things there for me, but I do think it works really well. It's just a good tight conspiracy thriller. Um, I was sort of struck watching it earlier this year again, that it's the Marvel movie that, tends most towards like gunplay which in the current climate didn't sit super well with me but you know it's just that's the type of movie it is I still think it's an outstanding example of like how the Marvel movies in particular kind of slot themselves into different genres outside of superheroes I think it works really well as like a kind of conspiracy spy thriller so I totally agree I think it was one of my favorites of the Marvel Cinematic Universe experiment project whatever you want to call it it and and for those reasons too because it showed that what they were doing was taking their characters and applying them in genres that would be a little surprising or unexpected. Of course, anyone who reads Captain America comics, the Brubaker uh, run, would know that they were kind of spy comics already. So to have an espionage action movie made total sense, and they really did a great job with it. Yeah, like, well, when the Brubaker run was coming out, I was always pitching it to potential buyers as, like, it's like Captain America in an episode of 24, which tells you when it was coming out, I guess, basically. But that was what it felt like, you know, sort of fast-paced, more gritty action type stuff. And that's definitely what they were pulling from. But it's one of the things I like about the Marvel movies, too, is that they don't just go for a straight-up adaptation of these stories. They put their own spin on it. So you're getting a different experience than you were reading the comic. Like, you're not just reading the comic faithfully transcribed. Like, they're doing their own thing, and that really works. And it was also, like, kind of a gamble, because the Russo brothers at that point were just a couple of guys known for TV comedies, mostly. And look at them now, so... Yeah, yeah, it's kind of amazing what they've been able to accomplish. Yeah, just a gamble that paid off. Like, they, I suspect they would do well in most genres that they decided to dabble in, so uh, it just happens that this is one they excelled at, so... All right, what else is on your list? Uh, well, you know, I was thinking in terms of 
comedies as well. And I think the comedy that I would go to as just being one that I really can't say anything bad about and kind of came out of nowhere for me was Game Night from, I believe it was last year. It was one that I missed in the theater. Somehow missed like almost all of the advertising for it. I don't know if you've seen this yet. I have seen Game Night after it arrived on other platforms, after it was out of the cinema. Yeah, same here. I think it was on Crave when I watched it. And, uh, you know, like for anyone who doesn't know it, it's very much a parody of like David Fincher in general, but also like the game in particular (laughs) where it's like for anyone that doesn't know it's jason bateman and rachel mcadams and uh you know a game night kind of goes awry that and they think they're still playing like a game but they don't know that there's real danger and real guns involved and stuff it is a very funny movie that is a very tightly scripted one too like you know i like a good adam uh mckay will ferrell comedy maybe not as much as some people but like i i find they lose me when they just go full improv with it where the, the script is very loose and they just start they'll get on a gag and they'll run with it for 20 minutes or something like not everybody can do the Christopher Guest thing is what I'm saying is like you know you have to have the right combination of people that can really riff on that kind of thing I like a really good scripted comedy where like there is a beginning a middle and an end there's a tight structure to it and this is a movie that very much follows that but also is very funny is very suspenseful is incredibly well made and very rewatchable I found I think I've watched it three times now I think it's great yeah that's a thing yeah this is what I found when I was assembling my list of my favorite movies of the last 10 years it really does reward movies that are rewatchable like if I if I really liked a movie uh but only saw it once and didn't feel like going back to it it wouldn't appear on the list but that means that certain tougher movies movies that maybe were a bit harder to watch maybe had a dealt with tough subjects might not then show up on a on a on my decade list which you know I had to acknowledge was just a part of my cinematic diet yeah for sure like in some movies it's also the uh the environment you see them in like I have I loved gravity but I've never seen it again because I don't know how easy it would be to replicate that experience of seeing it in like 3d IMAX in my living room would it have the same impact I don't know I kind of just want to leave it where it is but that does sort of diminish your lasting appreciation of it, I guess. So Yeah, that's so, that's an interesting sort of reflection of where we are as cinema uh, fans. The experience of seeing it on a big screen, if the film trades in that, then you might not wind up loving it as much if you can't enjoy it in the same way at home. Yeah, for sure. And um, I guess that's a good transition to the next one that I was going to put on my list, which is a movie that deals with a serious subject that's still, uh, you know, a raw wound for all of us a lot of ways but works really well as a thriller as well as zero dark 30 um which is one that uh, it came out i think it was like a year or two after the hurt locker which was the one that performed a lot better at the academy awards that year but zero dark 30 was the one i personally gravitated more towards and have found has more rewatch value it is that old cliche of like how do you tell a story like this where you know the ending how do you make it suspenseful Catherine bigelow did it <laughs> like that is a very suspenseful movie and like you know it's a kind of gripping global chase like a geopolitical thriller but you do know the ending but you're still on the edge of your seat the whole way through so it was on my list too uh and it's been fairly controversial because some of the politics around it there are there are those who feel like it's just a uh Uh, It's compromised because it's the CIA contributed to the story and therefore made themselves look better. But I know that people in the right in the United States felt it showed too much and that the filmmakers were given too much access to confidential materials. And then even more recently, the report came out. Have you seen the report? I have not. It's on my list to watch. I haven't watched it yet. but It deals with the same time and it's very particular about the ways the CIA lied 
about torture and about what they were doing and how much money they spent and how they treated people during this period. And Zero Dark Thirty, there's a shot at it specifically. I didn't love the report because I felt like it was a bit dry as a procedural Mm. while still admiring that it makes a very good argument for what it's trying to say. So I'll be interested in talking to you after you've seen the report. But Zero Dark Thirty, I think, still holds up very well as a film about a very dark time in history, a recent time in history. And uh, I don't think it's an endorsement of torture, but it definitely is a depiction of it. And it shows what was going on at the time. Yeah, like these are all fair complaints about it. And I guess like historical accuracies or things like that aside, it is, even though it's a reality-based work, like it lost the Oscar that year to Argo, which is a movie that is a lot less popular, but I also really enjoyed. And my defense of both of them, I guess, is just like, even if it is based on a real event, it is still a movie too. So I uh, will grant them latitude, even if it is like, ah, that's not totally how it went down. At the end of the day, if you're not making a documentary, (laughs) you're making a dramatic film and... You have to take certain licenses, I guess. All right, so let's go. What else is on your list? Well, I guess kind of keeping in a similar kind of global conflict uh, frame, I would throw uh, Dunkirk on there too, which is one that I missed the first time it was in theaters. And like I said, believe it was a summer opener and was playing at IMAX and all that jazz, and I missed it. Somehow I just missed it. Couldn't really get enthused about it. Then it came back at the end of the year, I think in the run-up to the Oscars. So I went just to see it by myself on like a Saturday matinee, and I was riveted. I thought it was great. I think it's Christopher Nolan's best movie, personally. I think it's structured in a way that's unlike anything I've ever seen before. I think it's just sort of really innovative in that structure and what it does within it. It's really suspenseful. I love that you never really see the enemy in it. It's all just sort of bullets whizzing by or like, you know, muzzle flashes off in the distance or whatever. I think it's kind of his masterpiece. I uh, I really appreciate you saying that. It it didn't make my list, but it was an alternate sort of like if uh, because Inception was on my list uh, and actually Interstellar. For we're talking about Nolan, but it's funny that you bring it up because what you're talking about gravity. I saw Dunkirk in IMAX when it was in cinemas, and it blew me away for that cinematic experience. And and I think partly it's because of the sound editing, the Hans Zimmer score with that propulsive anxiety building score Uh, and then the visuals not too much cgi and a lot of actual sets Mm -hmm. which felt so real but it did not encourage me to watch it again on a smaller screen because i felt like it was all about that experience Mm -hmm. but that's so interesting that you didn't see it on the big screen and yet you really loved it on a smaller screen yeah well i saw it like in a theater but then i have since watched it at home too and found it worked really well too like uh again like i I don't have, I have a, a surround sound system. It's not a great one. I got it off Kijiji for not a lot of money, but it works really well with that sound system. And, you know, he's just a master of that kind of sound design. And, like, again, with CGI, he's a guy who uses CGI in a way that's almost invisible. Like, you know, it's there, it has to be, but you can't really see it. You don't really see the strings, you know? And I appreciate that. So, cool. Yeah, that's a great pick. I'm, I, I'm loving your list so far. Uh, another one I would put on there uh, would be Jim Jarmusch's Patterson which is one that uh, Hillary went to see and then was like, I really want you to see this. I think you're going to like it. And I was like, I, maybe, I don't know. Like I hadn't really, I've not seen a lot of Jim Jarmusch movies. I think beyond this, I've only ever really seen Dead Man, which I didn't really love and Ghost Dog, which I remember really enjoying, but I don't think I've seen it since whenever it was in the theater. But Patterson, I really enjoyed. Uh, you know, Adam Driver, I think is a really interesting actor. Uh, I guess I'll see him in the report. Maybe I'll watch that tonight. Who knows? But I think... So many movies are so plot heavy that it's sometimes really nice to go see something that's 
kind of plotless where you're just kind of hanging out with a couple of characters over the course of a week the people that he runs into and just like little moments like he runs into a method man practicing his rhymes at a laundromat you know and there's like just kind of an odd little cast of characters you, like you think there's going to be plot and then there isn't and you're relieved like there's a part where like a couple of guys roll up in a car next to him walking his dog and start asking questions about the dog you're like oh no are they gonna steal the dog no they're just interested in his dog they drive off you never see them again it's just kind of comforting sometimes to watch a movie like that it just kind of had a really good soul i don't know how else to put it but i think it's a lovely film of jarmish's stuff from this past decade my favorite is the only lovers left alive have you seen that no i have not oh well then i absolutely deeply recommend that it is tilda like swinton? tilda swinton a tom hiddleston as a pair of vampires right, right, living right. sort of this loose rock and roll lifestyle i mean it, it's funny it's very droll and it's great. Oh, John Hurt, the late John Hurt is in it as well. So I think you would really enjoy that. That does sound like something I'd like. Uh, well, one that's like a more recent one, but has, I would say, become my favorite of the year thus far. And I don't know if you've seen it yet, but that's uh, Dolomite Is My Name. It's on my list to see, and I want to see it before the end of the year so I can consider it. But uh, yeah, you liked it. I loved it. Like, I, you know, it's written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who sort of specialize in these oddball Hollywood biopics. Like, this movie is very much like a spiritual sequel in some ways to Ed Wood, which they also wrote. Like, you know, similarly, just like a bunch of people who don't really know how to make a movie, just going ahead and doing it anyway. And succeeding beyond their wildest dreams. Like, it's, it's just really nice to see Eddie Murphy in a good movie again. Like, Beverly Hills Cop is one of my favorite movies. Like, I love 48 Hours. You know, like, I grew up, as you did, during, like, this period where Eddie Murphy was just the biggest star on the planet and he hasn't really made a good movie in a long time this is a really good movie and a really good performance and it's like as stupid as it sounds it's a really feel-good movie like most biopics have that arc where like there's the rise and then they get into drugs and success goes to their heads and then it all kind of falls apart I don't know what became of Rudy Ray Moore past where this movie ends but it just kind of ends on a high note like at the kind of the peak and it's great. You just, I just watched it with a big smile on my face. The music's great. Terrific supporting cast. Craig Robinson from The Office is in it. Keegan-Michael Key. Because I suspect you're an Ed Wood fan. Absolutely. Yeah, it's my favorite uh, Tim Burton, I think. Okay, you're in good company here then. I think you'll like it a lot. Like, this is sort of like the black exploitation version of Ed Wood in a way. Like, okay. Yeah, it's, That's it's great. really It's really fun. <laughs> and I have seen some of uh, Rudy Ray Moore's films. So See, I, I haven't. <laughs> I, know, I know what that they were like. Okay. Yeah. yeah, like now I'm very eager to check there's a Rudy Ray Moore box set that I really want to get my hands on now. I think it's seven movies. So, um, yeah, but based on this, I definitely want to check those out. Yeah, yeah. it's They're they're super entertaining. I mean, you did mention Ed Wood. I, I find Rudy Ray Moore's films a lot more fun than Ed Wood. Yeah, you know, I can watch Plan 9 from Outer Space. I can maybe watch uh, Glenn or Glenda. I don't really need to go any further in Ed Wood's filmography. <laughs> that. I would rather watch Ed Wood than watch an Ed Wood movie most yes. of the time. Let's put it yeah, that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the same boat. Uh, next up, this one can't really go without mention because it probably is the best straight-up action movie of the decade, and that's Mad Max Fury Road. I know that's got to be on your list. Too. It is. It's number two. Yeah. Like, I don't really know what I can say about it that hasn't been said better a million times already, but, like, it is really hard to find any fault with it. Like, it's just a really exciting movie, one where I can't really... Again, like, there's CGI in it, but you can't tell. Like, you just buy it all as, like, this crazy ballet of vehicular mayhem great cast it really speaks to sort of a moment about where we are right now in a lot of ways i don't know it's it's pretty much a perfect movie <laughs> no i absolutely agree with all of that uh and i wanted to say that uh and i don't know how well you remember 
the night that we all watched it for the first time. Oh, I remember pretty well. <laughs> yeah, but that it, in terms of my cinematic memories of seeing a movie for the first time here in Halifax in the last 10 years, I've got a sort of a, a short list of like three or four movies that I just remember walking out of the cinema and just like looking at everyone I knew who was there and going, holy shit, did you, did, did, we, we, see did we see that? Was that, that yeah. was amazing. Like I, I, uh, I had that a little bit with um, Hobo with a Shotgun yeah. because it was like so much of a party to mm-hmm. just to watch that movie with a crowd of people so primed for it. Yeah. But Mad Max was like, I think all of us went in kind of with expectations of, well, I hope it's good. It's been a long time mm-hmm. since the last one. And my memories of those movies are, are, I mean, they were pretty great. And they really affected me as a young person. Especially The Road Warrior, like mm-hmm. of the three yeah, oh, yeah. original. The Road Warrior still holds up. Yeah, I watched The Road Warrior and I always have the sensation of like, I could just hit play and watch that again right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is remarkable filmmaking. But the fact that so many years later, the same filmmaker comes back to basically the same material and updates it in a way that we could never have expected. Mm-hmm. Like, it is... Yeah, I, I still don't know. Like, I still really... Every time I watch it, I still can't believe it. Yeah, well, and also it was such a like a struggle to get it made. I mean, he would, he'd been trying since about 2000, I think, to get yeah. it done. And, yeah. you know, like in the meantime, so many other projects like came and went. Like he was going to do a Justice League movie in 2009. It was like all but ready to go. And then, you know, the financing fell through or whatever. And then he had to come back to this. And like just to have that kind of struggle to get it made and then have it actually be pulled off beyond your wildest dreams of quality is pretty remarkable like how often does that happen yeah it just doesn't it's a miracle really. yeah you look at all the times terry gilliam like him trying to make that don quixote movie for like decades and decades and decades and then he finally does and nothing really comes of it yeah <laughs> you know? no and I, i'm sad to say i haven't even seen it yet i guess Maybe it must either. be available yeah because i think it opened like last year or two years ago it, no it opened i think last year and it just played for maybe like uh it had like one of those event screenings and oh, then okay. that was it and mm-hmm. i don't know if it's shown up on a streaming service yet or not i would like to see it but uh, yeah, that's that's sad. Yeah, I've never really seen it out in the wild anywhere. I've never seen it pop up on a streaming service, or I've never even seen a physical copy anywhere. No. I mean, not that you usually do anymore, it seems. But yeah, not too often. That's funny. Out in the wild, like yeah. like <laughs> movies, like random Gilliam movies are are wandering out in the streets. Yeah, or like <laughs> on the five dollar bin at the grocery store. I don't know. Yeah, if I did, I would buy it. But yeah, I mean, I'd be curious after all this time and struggle. But yeah. anyway, but yeah, but like, but Fury Road is very much the exact opposite. Where like, after all that toil it finally happened and it was way better than you ever would have hoped so mm-hmm. uh, but I guess keeping with the sequel theme another one that really blew me away and I was couldn't have been happier that it turned out as well as it did is Creed um, which you know I guess would be more in what they call now a legacy sequel where it's like you're following new characters but you're folding in some existing ones uh, you know before we started recording we were talking about the current Watchmen TV show which I think would fall into that realm as well and uh, yeah I thought Creed was terrific I think it's you know, stands with the best of the Rocky series. Like, I'm a big fan of that series. I was really glad to see it continue in this way rather than, like, you know, I'm sure given his druthers, Sylvester Stallone would have wanted to come out and play Rocky one more time boxing again, even though, like, Rocky Balboa kind of put the finish to that. That's where that story, that part of his story needs to end. But it was nice to have the baton get picked up by a whole new character, a whole new set of characters, and continue forward. I thought Creed Two was really good, and I'm really hoping there will be more along the way. Um, you know, I think it's... a uh, 
an important step in the ride, the ascendancy of Michael B. Jordan. I think he's great in that role. I think it really announced Ryan Coogler as a major talent, obviously, which continued on into Black Panther. Also, like his previous film, Fruitvale Station. I don't know if you saw that. That was a great movie, too. Um, you know, he's someone who I will always make time for now. So, yeah, I really like Creed in this era of reboots and, like you say, legacy sequels. <clears throat> that did it almost the best like in a way that I would never have expected and full marks to, to Stallone for handing over his his baby the franchise he's most associated with to a young African-American filmmaker and having that guy just take it yeah. and go with it and give Stallone some of his most poignant work playing the character we all know but in a different milieu in a in a in a different story that was so good so effective it it had all the emotional beats you expect from a rocky movie but it was new mm-hmm. and yeah yeah i i wasn't as much of a fan of the second one as you were i felt like it got a little bit like it it, it played more to the clichés rather than to feeling fresh and that probably could be because or my feelings around it could be because my expectations were so raised by the by creed but yeah i agree with you i want to see more and i would be totally up for it they can run with this for a while as far as i'm concerned oh yeah for sure like i i definitely did not like the second one as much as the first one but it's i think a really worthy follow-up to rocky four more so than to creed but like the rocky four stuff really did work for me but i do want to see stallone kind of step away from it like i was very nervous going into it because it sort of seemed like stallone was taking ownership again of the franchise and he i think i believe co-wrote it but uh you know, I think he, the graceful thing would be to step back at this point. I haven't seen his latest Rambo movie. I have no interest in it. I think It's not good. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. So I think it's time for him to sort of step back and let somebody else steer the ship for a while. All right. Very good. Very good. Oh, this is this is so much fun. I'm really loving all your picks. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sorry. It's like probably going to run a little long. I don't think I have that many more. We're going through them quicker than I expected to. But that's all right. there's lots of side missions to talk about as well, too. Okay. Um, the next one, uh, you know, I got to have a horror movie on the list. And uh, I really struggled with this one because there was two that I went back and forth on. And if you ask me tomorrow, it could change. But the one I went with is Jordan Peele's Us. Ask me tomorrow, it could be Get Out. I think they're both top flight horror movies, but also movies. Um, you know, like I think he's just such a talented filmmaker. I'm so glad horror is the genre he's decided to play in. You know, again, this is a guy who comes from sketch television. Who knew he had this in him? But he did, and uh, Get Out is immediately great. I think when you're watching it, you just immediately, you know what it's telling you, and you, you know you understand the poignancy of it, and it's a good thriller and a good horror movie. Us was one that I kind of had to sit with for a day or two before it kind of fully revealed itself to me, and when it did, I thought, like, that's a masterpiece. I think it's like, I don't know, just sort of the stuff it's saying. They're, but both movies say a lot of really kind of interesting and frightening things about America. I think the larger scope of us appealed to me more that it's kind of this more apocalyptic thriller in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I love it. I think it's great. I don't know know how you feel about it. Um, well, get out was on my list. I hear you on us. I've read a lot about it. You know, I'm not as much of a horror guy in terms of genre appreciation as Mm -hmm. you are. I had problems with it that I couldn't overlook i i haven't seen it a second time maybe that would help i'd recommend it but i had problems with this plausibility like i understand that a lot of the film is allegory about uh, class Mm -hmm. and about race but i just didn't buy that there was this whole underground society the 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 sort of more fantastic sci-fi plot elements 
by the end, I just was like, I was taken out of the movie because I just was like, how is this even possible? So, so that was my problem with it. And I haven't been able to reconcile it. Well, a second viewing might do that for you. I don't know. Like the more I thought about that angle of it, the less I became concerned with the plausibility. And I thought it like more than anything else, it just, it's, it's about the 2016 election. You know, it's about a group of people who feel that they were left behind by the larger majority who decide that they're going to swoop up and take the country back. And, you know, to me, it's just like how we get there is less important than where we're going. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, uh, I think it's, you know, it's got a really great final image that is, you know, I mean, it's the country divided by a line of people in red, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I don't know. I think it's terrific. And, you know, part of me too is I really like, I love horror movies, but I love social horror movies like George Romero's zombie movies are a great example of like using that as a metaphor to say something about the ills of the world we live in. Uh, like this Invasion of the Body Snatchers is another great one, which I think Get Out kind of falls more into that category too. Um, and it's just not a, a type of horror you don't see as much anymore. Like I think movies like The Purge kind of try for it, but in a, a kind of blundering, big swingy way that's fun, but not especially thought-provoking <laughs> but i think us just kind of works on every level for me and i would also just sort of recommend as a, a companion to it not long after um there's a horror streaming service that i subscribe to called shutter i don't know if you're familiar i've with heard it. of it sure yeah they have some original content on there and one of them was a new documentary called horror noir that was sort of about the horror genre through the lens of the african-american experience like african-american filmmakers actors fans whatever so jordan peele was involved in it as well as like a lot of people you'd recognize like keith david and ken foray rusty cundy from the tales from the hood movies and that's a really fascinating watch too highly recommend that's the only place i know you can get it but however you get your hands on it it's really if you're at all interested in the genre it's yeah really good okay watch, thanks so. for the recommendation that's cool no problem uh, I guess the next one, there's not much getting away from this element in the room, but uh, I would put Star Wars The Last Jedi on there. Um, you know, I got to have a Star Wars on there. It's kind of baked into my DNA to be a fan of this stuff. And I know that's a controversial choice, but I will always defend it on this grounds. If nothing else, it is the first Star Wars movie since 1980 that surprised me. <laughs> like, I didn't know where we were going, where it wasn't kind of like a half-assed remake of something that already existed or a prequel to something. Like, when you get to that throne room battle... It reminded me a lot of in the Dark Knight when Rachel gets blown up, and you're just like, "Wait, that's not supposed to happen. Where are we going now?" <laughs> like, and I had that same feeling of like, "I don't know where this is going. This is crazy." And you know, I, re- I rewatched the original trilogy this past week in preparation for the new one later on this week, and the arc seems to be: first one's a crowd pleasing blockbuster, second one takes more risks and maybe doesn't do as well as a result. Cause I, Empire is generally regarded now as the best of the series, but I don't think made as much money as A New Hope, and I think probably was met with a lot more skepticism. And I think if the internet existed back then, it would have burned the internet down. People would have just hated it. But then the third one is like, well, we're going to go back to the familiar. People don't want to be surprised at this point. They want the same old, same old. And based on some of the comments that J.J. Abrams has been making this past week, I kind of feel like that's where the rise of Skywalker is going. I think they're going to maybe try to undo some of the stuff The Last Jedi did that people that fans complained about. I think that's a very dangerous road to go down. Hopefully I'm wrong. We'll see. I think it's a great movie. (laughs) Yeah, that is really interesting. I'm really glad that you brought it up, especially since you are such a serious Star Wars fan. And I think your arguments for... 
The Last Jedi are really solid. I didn't love it as much as you did. I certainly didn't feel like burning it down. I wasn't <laughs> amongst the group, uh, not anywhere amongst the group of fans that felt it was horrible and 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 have been pitchforks and torches through the streets mm-hmm. wanting to to have it, you know, written out of the canon. I find that ridiculous. Uh, I really like some of the risks they chose they to, to take. Uh, I, I really enjoyed how they used the character of Luke Skywalker and how he kind of became slightly embittered, which is not what you'd expect, but he was so naive and he was so young when all this stuff happened to him that to see him years mm-hmm. later kind of, you know, broken by some of the mistakes that he had made was vivid and surprising, like you say, and I really liked that. That was some of my favorite parts, was his arc was my favorite parts of the movie. Where I felt like it let me down was in some of the sort of space battles, one ship being unable to catch up to another ship, and therefore the, the, the pursued ship allowing characters to fly off and have other separate adventures before coming back. The, just the logistics of that seemed a little silly to me. Yeah. Um, and I didn't like the casino planet. I thought all of that stuff felt uh, hackneyed in a way that I couldn't reconcile. Well, yeah, like I, the space chase, the logistics of that, I'll agree. That is pretty hanky. I don't know about that. The casino I liked, and I liked it mostly because it introduced an element to this world that we hadn't seen, which is that there are people profiting off the war. You know, it's kind of interesting, too, because this is in the midst of a Disney merchandising blitz, too. But it's like, who's profiting off the war? Well, it's Disney, clearly. But I like that aspect of it, that it opened up that end of this universe. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that the revelation that Ray's parents were nobody is really great. And that's what I'm worried is they're going to undo that in the next movie. But I think that's I wouldn't be surprised if they did. And that pisses me off. Like, I don't want to get preemptively angry about it. But I think, like, it's a much better message for today Rather than, you know, we've had this for our whole lives, this whole sort of chosen one narrative of like, well, you've got a famous last name, it turns out you're going to go off and do famous things. Isn't a better message to tell people, particularly young viewers, that it doesn't matter what your name is or where you came from, that you can do great things no matter what, you know? like Absolutely, yeah. But I think people are just at this point, they just want the familiar, they want the same old, same old. And a lot of the complaints and anger directed towards that movie stem from weird sexist racist stuff too and just a need for it to just be like well you know force awakens was a blanket kind of remake of uh a new hope this one why isn't an empire strikes back and like it is and then until it's not and then uh-huh. i think that's where it loses a lot of people uh-huh. but i don't know i uh i got a lot of admiration for it that's cool all right man I, i'm actually hoping to watch it again before thursday when we go and watch uh the new star wars film so well so. another thing too that people hate is that snoke turns out to be such a, a fake out you know but watching the uh, i watched return of the jedi the other night and i thought like this is all i need from this guy from the emperor i don't need his whole stupid backstory like he's an evil old guy in a bathrobe shoots lightning at his fingertips got it you know so like people are like well we didn't get to find out who snoke was who cares like he was sort of a fake out anyway i feel like with kylo ren it's more interesting that he kind of succeeds where his grandfather failed or he took down his big boss and took over the big evil uh, organization that's more interesting to me than if it just followed the notes of people complaining oh he was just doing it to subvert expectations like yeah, I don't want to just see the same thing over. Why do people just want the same reheated leftovers over and again? You know, like do something different. Shake it up. I agree. I agree. So, you know, and it's funny that you mentioned that and about Kylo Ren's arc. Um, when I was a kid, I remember one of the complaints I had over time. I'm fine with it now. But one of the complaints I had about Return of the Jedi was that Darth Vader has a moment of doubt mm-hmm. and he 
he turns back to the light side, turns away from the dark side at the end. Mm -hmm. And to me, Darth Vader was the villain of my childhood. Like he was the scariest, most terrifying character. But there was something delicious about his single-minded evil. I could always look at him and go, aha, that's what that is. And it gave me comfort to know how identifiable of an evil he was. Mm -hmm. And so when he turned out to actually have feelings for the goods i was actually a little disappointed i was like oh he's not he hasn't been true to his character and with kylo ren in uh, the last jedi doubling down on the fact that he killed his father and then he wants to destroy his uncle i mean that to me feels like oh okay he's almost like fulfilling the darth vader myth in a way that is kind of awesome and mm-hmm. surprising too because I uh, they've been playing it sort of like Kylo Ren could be redeemed but now I, I don't know how they do that yeah I'm interested to see I, like I say J.J. Abrams is kind of often criticized for kind of bullshitting in a lot of his press runs leading up to things so I'm kind of hoping that's all this is like he's made comments I don't even remember the, the exact wording but just kind of made it sound like he didn't really care for a lot of stuff The Last Jedi did and that maybe they're going to fix it this time out Hopefully that's all just misdirection. Hopefully they've come up with something totally unexpected to do that, you know, will probably ignite a whole other debate, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. So how how many do we have left here? Uh, I think I've only got three on here. Uh, The next one I'm going to throw on here could change depending on my rewatching of his most recent film. But right now I'm going to put Django Unchained on there, um, which is one that I did not really like that much the first time I saw. Like this happens with a lot of filmmakers, including the ones who are going to top my list where like they'll put out one that I like so much that when the next one comes out, it's something totally different. And I'm like, nah, I don't like it as much. But then when I come back to it, I find it has its own pleasures. So coming off of Inglorious Bastards, which is still my favorite Tarantino movie going into Django Unchained, it seemed a little shaggier. Like the script didn't seem as tight. It kind of seemed to meander a lot. It just seemed a little less fully formed, but I've come around on it a lot now. Like I think it's, you know, a great Jamie Foxx performance. I think it's another great uh, Christoph Waltz performance. Some of the best work Samuel L. Jackson may have ever done. That is not a character you see him playing ever. And he crushes it. He's great. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think Leonardo DiCaprio is really good. Like, really going for it in a way of, like, does not care if he's playing, like, a likable guy. Like, he's very much not a likable guy. And this is a guy with, you know, like, a teen heartthrob image for a long time to get over. And, and this, he is just vile, so... I really enjoy that one. I'm with you on DiCaprio. I think he it's one of his best roles. Mm-hmm. I really like how fearless he is playing that role. Uh, I haven't gone back to it. And I think me and Tarantino, we need to sit down and have a conversation because I have struggled with his more recent films. Uh, I enjoyed the experience of The Hateful Eight in the cinema because I saw it in Toronto at a 70 millimeter so screening <laughs> yeah. and with an intermission and everything. And I love that whole experience of discovery mm-hmm. that you can get with a film that is as, as thoughtful and well-constructed as it is, but it hasn't aged well in my memory and I haven't wanted to see it again and I've had some issues and he is he's a provocative filmmaker he likes to push buttons I don't like the way he treats women in some of his films and then this year's film which didn't like much when I first saw it I read a bunch of stuff I thought about it more I went to see a second time and my second viewing brought it into the positive I was like okay I think I understand it better and I liked it more 
but not enough for it to trouble any of my lists. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm just, I'm feeling a little lukewarm about Tarantino these days. Um, and I think it's because I'm changing and he is basically just being true to who he is in his filmmaking style. Yeah. I still have a huge amount of respect for the way he can write dialogue. It's like you say, Inglorious Bastards is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, well, I I, uh, I appreciate that. Maybe I need to go back and watch Django Unchained and, and give it another try. Well, I, I think I'm having a similar issue with you with his later movies as well. Like, I also saw Hateful Eight in, like, the 70mm presentation, which was terrific. The movie itself, I've only, I think, watched twice. I'm not totally sold on it, but I will forever be grateful for the fact that because of that movie I got to see a new western with a new Ennio Morricone score on the big screen in what 2015 who would have ever imagined that absolutely (laughs) so I'll always be grateful for that experience once upon a time in Hollywood I've only seen the once and I liked it okay I did not like I know it's made a lot of people's best of the year list best of the decade best of his career list like people some people are really really into it so I need to re-examine it because there's a lot I liked about it but I, I got to give it another look. I don't know. It just didn't totally land for me. I, I struggled with the idea that these guys were somehow heroic. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it again, I realized sort of how pitiful they both are, mm-hmm. These this sort of dual lead. And I really enjoyed the performances more. I guess I felt more as a result. In fact, in terms of like emotion in a, in a story, I think this is paralleled with Jackie Brown in terms of like these characters on the ragged edge of their of their midlife and having to figure out how to go forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I liked about it more, having seen it a second time. So, Oh, and as a companion yeah. piece to Django, as, a, as I did with us, I want to throw in another side recommendation, which is uh, if you want to see a Western with an African-American hero but not have to hear the N-word shouted in your face every 30 seconds, I would recommend uh, the Denzel Washington remake of The Magnificent Seven. It's not a great film, but I think it's a good, solid kind of action Western with a more diverse cast, which historical inaccuracy be damned. I don't care. I loved seeing that. And uh, yeah, like the issue of his race is barely a factor. Like it kind of gets hinted at a little bit at the end in part of his origin story, but it's not really an issue, which is nice to see. Yeah, no, I thought that was entertaining too. It surprised me that a remake of The Magnificent Seven would be any fun. And uh, you're right, the casting helped a lot and that crazy over the top finale where every you know every bullet ever made gets shot yeah <laughs> just unbelievable yeah yeah all right so i think you have one left i have two left you have two left and this was okay. really hard because again i could go either way like i they could change places at any given moment but i'm gonna start with blade runner 2049 which is a movie that you and i saw together and as soon as it ended i turned to you and said i i think i love that movie and i think you were a little less sure on the first time mm-hmm. i thought it was a little chilly I thought it was efficient mm-hmm. and good, but a little chilly. I, I I struggled to connect with some of the emotional aspect of it. I immediately went and saw it again mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was like, I think I think I'm gonna like it, and I absolutely got it the second time. Again, it was, and I think I saw it on the IMAX the second time, and I was like, oh, oh man, IMAX was pretty spectacular. I saw it three times in the theater, and the last one was in the IMAX. And I'm so grateful it wasn't 3D either. Like it was yeah, just me big too. and loud, and that was mm-hmm. all I wanted from it. Um, yeah, like, well, I think you were right to be skeptical, and we both were going into it. I, like, I was not anticipating a good time at that movie, because you and I are both huge Blade Runner fans. Um, I think, like me, <laughs> seeing Ridley Scott return to one of his franchises with Prometheus was a huge disappointment. I'm not going to go on about Prometheus, because God knows, anyone who knows me knows I've gone on about it at length. 
And Ridley Scott, you know, he didn't direct Blade Runner 2049, but he did produce it and kind of shepherd it to the screen, which had me very nervous indeed. I wasn't totally sold on Denis Villeneuve yet, although I had seen Arrival the previous year and enjoyed that quite a bit. But this movie just floored me. I don't know, like top to bottom, the production design, the music, the cast, the story. Like I did not think there was anything left to explore based on the first movie. I thought it was a perfectly self-contained idea. And this one expanded on in a way that I did feel like I felt that it had a lot of emotional weight to it that continues to grow with every watching of it. I don't even know how many times I've watched it at this point. To me, it's almost like uh, AMSR or whatever. People sometimes need to go to sleep where it's like, I can almost feel like there's a sensation of my temples being massaged when I watch it. I just find it like a really relaxing, contemplative space to spend time in. Some of Harrison Ford's best acting, like, you know, that guy... Let's be fair. He doesn't really try that much anymore. <laughs> like, I don't know that he ever really tried that much to begin with for most of his movies. But I do think it's like a really deeply felt performance. Like, I love uh, Anna Diarmaz in it, who we just saw in Knives Out. And she continues to be really great. Um, oh, the lady who plays Love, uh, Jared Leto's sort of assistant assassin replicant. She's terrific. Even Jared Leto, you know, it kind of breaks my heart that that role was supposed to go to David Bowie. You know, you can imagine the possibilities. Then you get Jared Leto, and it's like, fine, whatever. It does not derail the movie. I think he does okay with it, even though he's way too young for what that character ought to be. But I just think it's a really fascinating movie. <laughs> a really fascinating expansion of a movie that I already loved. I actually prefer it slightly over the original now. Like, it's kind of leapfrogged over it for me. I just love it. Yeah. Wow. I also very much enjoyed it. I, it's funny. I recently watched, do you know the British... Uh, Critic, uh, writer, uh, film reviewer Mark Kermode. He um, he has a uh, he goes on BBC Radio regularly to talk about films, and then they film his appearances, and you can watch them on YouTube. So you you know they're usually like seven or eight minute uh, film reviews, and his review of Blade Runner twenty forty nine is actually really moving mm. because he talks about how mm. much anxiety had built up in him going into the cinema it's like what is this going to be and how is it going to reflect back on this other cinematic property that I really love and he said the relief that he felt after like 20 minutes where he's like oh oh he gets it yeah, we're he good gets hands. it we're in good hands <laughs> this is going to be okay uh, it's actually really moving to hear him talk about that he gets a, he gets a little emotional mm -hmm. because he he was so worried and he's not wrong especially I think that Villeneuve understood that what works so well with Blade Runner, you know, I have time for the conversation about replicants and whether Deckard is a human or not human or what have you. But what works so well, it's a tone. It's a, an emotional tone that comes from music and visuals. The plot is important. And, you know, I think it's important to understand that what it's really about and the sequel as well is about what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. And that is a question I am happy to give plenty of time for. I can watch a bunch of movies about that subject. Um, in fact, a bunch of them wound up on my list, including Blade Runner 2049 and Ex Machina. But it's about the feeling that the movie gives you, and 2049 does it. Mm -hmm. it, it, it replicates and then, <laughs> no pun intended, and then increases that feeling going forward. And it's about score, it's about the visuals, and it's about the world, the world universe building mm -hmm. that it does so well. So I'm with you there. It, it was in my top 20. I think the only thing about it that I had some critical issues and I'm still struggling with a little bit is its male gaze. How it uses female characters. And that's a problem, I think, in the first film, too, is like the uh, women are being killed by men in the film repeatedly. And that just image is something that's hard to 
take away. I find I, I struggle with a little bit as much as I love the first film. Um, the second film doesn't necessarily resolve it as well as I was going to hope. I still wonder about the character of. I'm trying to remember the names now. I'm, I'm Joy? Like Joy, yeah. Joy's the holographic character. Like, you know, what is she there for? Is she just there to give a lesson to Kay? Or does she have her own arc? Does she have her own story? I I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'm still kind of trying to wrestle with it. Well, yeah, I think she's a really fascinating character because I do think that there is an ambiguity there of like, does she have her own agenda? Does she have her own feelings? Or is she strictly there to tell him what he wants to hear which is like oh you are a real boy you are special you know like and that she does love him like does she love him is she just programmed to say that because she he sees that billboard later of that program and it's like everything you want to see everything you want to hear that it really is just reinforcing these ideas but i do think that the relationship between uh, i you know you are right it definitely skews more towards the the male end but at least it has a woman in a position of authority with robin wright as yes. captain yeah. i think she's terrific in it i love uh-huh. her and the character of love like i said the sort of assassin there's a really interesting scene between her and ryan gosling early on i think it's some of ryan gosling's best work too because he's a guy that i thought for a long time well he just kind of plays the same sort of humanoid basically like this emotionless blank slate that we're supposed to project whatever onto but his character i think the key to it is that he has emotions he just buries them because for a replicant to show emotions is to essentially show that you are a faulty piece of machinery and you have to be dealt with now so there's a scene early on when he goes to jared leto's place to talk to him about the, the mystery he's trying to solve. And he's talking to Love, who is also a replicant. They're listening to the recording of Deckard and uh, Rachel. And she's like, oh, she likes him. You know, like asking questions is a way to provoke an emotional response. And then she starts asking him questions like, oh, do you, do you enjoy your work and stuff? And it's like both of them are having these have emotions that they kind of keep tamped down. But they're kind of bubbling to the surface, which I think is a really cool dynamic. So, mm-hmm. anyway. And that's balanced with the scene where they fight to the death later. Yeah. And it's like, it's so violent. Mm-hmm. It's violent to the point where I was like, oh, man, I can, it's, I'm hard, having a hard time watching this. Um, but having acknowledging all of that, I still love the film. I love that Villeneuve was able to maintain the ambiguity about Deckard's yes. reality. Yes, yes, yes. Because that is, like, again, like we're talking about the relief you felt, uh, the Mark Kermode that he felt. Like, when we got to that point in the movie, like, leading up to it in a lot of the press, this was adding to my anxiety. Ridley Scott kept saying, yeah, we're going to definitively answer it, whether De- Deckard's a replicant. And I was just like, don't. Just don't. Like, don't. I don't want to hear it. And we got to that point in the movie, I was so invested in it already that when he said that line about, like, you know that your love was so perfect that maybe that you were programmed and it was like oh is that it did he answer it and then i I was kind of okay with it i was like well i guess all right i can live with it and then he's like yeah or maybe not i don't know and then just kind of threw it i was like oh thank god (laughs) like they didn't they did not betray our trust with no he all he says i know what's real yeah and that's yeah i I thought that was some amazing writing Mm -hmm. and uh yeah, although I have spoken to another Blade Runner fan, uh, actually a professor over at King's about this fairly recently. Um, in in the November 2019, we did a little story on the CBC about how we've reached the point that Blade Runner is no longer set in the future. Mm-hmm. And he said he felt that it was decided by the virtue of the fact that Deckard is still alive, mm-hmm. that replicants did have a four-year lifespan, and the fact that he's still alive 
means that he wasn't a replicant. And I was like, well, really? We've learned new things about replicants. We've learned yeah. that they now can reproduce, given the right circumstances. So maybe all the rules that we thought we knew about replicants previously aren't the case. And maybe we should consider them as more than just machines and maybe that's really what this is all about yeah <laughs> like uh, you know rachel was a special case she was like you know depending on which version of the movie you watch like if you watch the original 1982 there's the voiceover that says she was special she didn't have a four-year lifespan but then this one being i assume more of a sequel to the director's cut that part doesn't apply but she can reproduce so she's a special kind of replicant too so if deckard is a replicant he could also be a special kind of replicant but we'll never know it's a, a mystery that I hope remains a mystery. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That was very delicious. All of that. Mm -hmm. All right. This is great. I'm loving it. All right. So <laughs> let me hear the last one. Last one. Inside Lewin Davis. Favorite Coen Brothers movie. Favorite movie of the decade. One of my favorite movies, period, at this point. Uh, like maybe for me, my favorite movie I've ever seen about art and artists, if that makes sense. Like I, I think that it's just, it's a movie that really zeroes in on like a, what I would call the inherent selfishness of the artistic impulse, which is to say, I'm going to do this thing that I was going to do anyway, and I deserve to get paid for it, <laughs> which is fair, you know, but it is like, it's kind of a selfishness. And there's that one scene where he meets with his sister who kind of tells him like, well, I don't think this music thing's working out for you. You should probably just go get a job, you know? And he's like, oh, what? And just exist. And she's like, is that what the rest of us do? Exist? You know, and to me, that's the key, the key scene in the movie, like that it revolves around. It says everything you need to know about his character and just about what this movie says about art and making art. And uh, yeah, like, I just love it. Like, I think Oscar Isaac's performance is like one of my favorites ever. I think the music is fantastic. I just love, you know, it's not Roger Deakins doing the cinematography. I don't know what he was doing instead, but it's, I've forgotten the cinematographer. It's not their usual guy, but I love the sort of soft look of it. Like, um, I love John Goodman in it. I love oh, the scene with F. Murray Abraham when he goes to audition for him and he gives that heartbreaking performance and he's just like, I don't see a lot of money here. <laughs> like it's, I love it. I love everything about it. Yeah, I, uh, I really like it too. I own it in my library and uh, it was an alternate on my list of the best movies because I suddenly realized I hadn't acknowledged that it, it, and I, I feel a little embarrassed about this because I really, if I thought about it more, I think I probably should have included it. I had this feeling when I was talking about Carol uh, that I didn't include it as an alternate and I really should have had it on there because it was, seeing it again, I was reminded how good Carol is. But the thing about Lewin Davis that unfortunately has made me not embrace it the way you have is that uh, it unfortunately crosses over into that realm of movies where it's just a little I find it a little bit of a hard watch and maybe that speaks to me as a frustrated artist because mm. in lots of parts of my life I feel like I wish I was more creative and I was wish I was doing more that was creative and when I watch it I just find it like grinding into me a little bit oh, you yeah, know no, I get that too because you know like I I'm an artist myself and you know obviously everybody wants to get compensated more for it but it is that thing you have to overcome of like asking for money for what you've done that they, you probably were going to do anyway yeah um so yeah it can be a tough watch plus he's a very unsympathetic lead character like he's mm -hmm. he's a real shit you know like he he does that song and that, that great scene that please mr kennedy song yeah it's such a good song where he gets paid uh you know like justin timberlake is essentially paying him to go have <laughs> justin timberlake's girlfriend is pregnant with Lewin Davis's baby and he's going to take the money that he made from making that to pay for her abortion essentially you know like this is not a good guy but it's I think a fascinating movie that 
I don't know, just gets me on every conceivable level that I appreciate a movie on. So, Do you watch that scene and think about the fact that those actors would go on to be in Star Wars? It was one of the first things I thought about when they released the cast list for The Force Awakens. I don't know if you remember, but they released that photo of the table read, and it was our first look. Oh, these people are on? Like Oscar Isaac's in it, Adam Driver's in it. And I think I immediately went to Facebook and shared the performance of Please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh, maybe Justin Timberlake will turn up in The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Wouldn't that be a nice reunion? You know, it, it is without a doubt a great movie. It's my favorite Cohen movie of the last decade. Mm. Uh, though I have a lot of time for Hail Caesar. I do too. And this is the thing I was saying with Tarantino, how like I'll come out of one on such a high and then the next one I'll be like, eh. I kind of had that with Hail Caesar the first time. I thought, well, it's no inside Lewin Davis. Then I went to see it again and I thought, well, it doesn't have to be. Like, this is just a really entertaining movie on its own right. And I, totally. like, I love Hail Caesar now. Like, yeah. I think it's a great movie. I do too. I don't I think do it's too. as deep of a watch as Inside Lewin Davis, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be. Like, it's nope. just a very well made, entertaining movie full of great performances. Yeah. And um, there's something to be said about True Grit and. Um, the one that recently showed up on Netflix, the... Um, oh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. <laughs> I, enjoy, I enjoyed that one a lot, too. But yeah, like I, I... I keep wanting to say A Serious Man, but that's, I think, 2009. That's yeah. one that I think is overlooked by a lot of people. I think it is, though. Real Coen Brothers fans, I think, adore it. I've heard a lot of... like It has a cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's great. I watched it again, yeah. I think, earlier this year, and I still love it. Um, now, there's two notable things that I left off because it's you alluded to it earlier this year is the the big Scorsese Marvel debate I don't think it was while we were recording maybe before we were recording but I came very close with putting both The Irishman and Avengers Endgame on here <laughs> you know because I'm trying to be fair and I think they're both great movies and you know I sympathize with both sides of that debate I'm kind of irritated by both sides of it but I think there's room for both in my diet particularly like I thought and Endgame again like you said with uh, coming out of Fury Road it was one of those theatrical experiences that I'll never forget because it was like I think you and I talked about this it was like being at a rock concert like it was just people just freaking out and you can't discount that and say well that's just an amusement park ride like you don't get that experience if you're not invested in the characters which clearly the people were so yeah absolutely and yeah the the moment where well the 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 portals and the moment where Captain America and spoiler alert everybody if you haven't seen Endgame if you're the one person on the planet who haven't seen it yet but the point where Cap picks up the hammer mm-hmm. like I the reaction in the crowd was like like almost unparalleled to uh, any experience in cinema I've ever had where there was just a roar yeah. of of excitement yeah and there was like there's a high profile death at the end of the movie that there was a woman behind me that was just sobbing Mm -hmm. you know and again like you're not going to get this if it's just a roller coaster ride so I think Scorsese a little out of touch like I do think what he's saying with like regards to what movies are allowed to be made via the financing it's true unfortunately it is going to be the bigger movies but that is just a function of it being a business rather than being an art yeah like I agree with him more on the uh, business side of his argument Disney owns a lot of property and they are going to exploit for the most money that they can make Mm -hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that their films aren't worth seeing or aren't important and don't engage and don't get young people to go to the movies which let's face it they have a lot of other things they could be doing with their time they really do yeah and like the whole thing of like, well, it's not cinema. That to me, that just sounds like when in the eighties, when hip hop music started to be a thing, and the constant complaint was like, well, it's not music. They're not playing instruments. It's not real music. Like, it's a series of sounds. You know, like it's I that create a rhythm. I don't know. Like, what do you want? Strung like, into songs. Strung yeah. into song. Like, who's going to be making that argument in this day and age? Well, I'm sure 
somebody is, but they're wrong. <laughs> like, I don't think we need to have our definitions of these things be that narrow. Like, these art forms can't just be these static, locked into place kind of formats. Like, they change, they evolve, they grow. And I think this is an extension of that. And some are yeah. going to be better than others, but it's what it is. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. And I'm not a particularly big fan of The Irishman. I watched it. I thought it was too long. <laughs> I admired what he was trying to do with the script. In fact, the script, I think, is pretty strong. But I had trouble with some of the performances. I had trouble with the de-aging. And I just felt like Scorsese was going over ground that he's gone over before with these kinds of movies, a story of of desperate men, of loyalty, and, you know, in, in the crime milieu. It, it, didn't, it didn't feel really new to me, which struck me as kind of kind of ironic <laughs> given this discussion that everyone's been having lately fair uh, i don't know i i enjoyed it a lot i do think it could have been shorter like i think you could have easily trimmed 20 or 30 minutes of driving or conversations that kind of go in a circle but i do think there's i really enjoyed it because it was sort of like an all hands on deck kind of a farewell to that type of movie for scorsese like a lot of collaborators in there even like don rickles you know who was in casino appears via a guy playing him in a, a nightclub scene you know I, I kept thinking like who would Frank Vincent have played if he was still alive? You know, that kind of bummed me out that he wasn't around for it. And I do like that it is kind of like this alternate secret history of the back half of the 20th century via the mob and organized, you know, labor and stuff like that. And it kind of dovetails with even things like JFK at one point where we meet the character of David Ferry, who's played by Joe Pesci in JFK, you know, when they're setting up, like he's dumping off some stuff for the botched Bay of Pigs invasion. You know, I like, I liked how that kind of stuff all worked into it, but uh, didn't quite make my list, but I did really enjoy it. Um, I could have done it all in one sitting. Hillary was starting to fade in the last hour, so we finished it the next day, but uh, I did really enjoy it. But I think I had a better time watching Avengers Endgame. Sorry, Marty. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I really appreciate how much thought you put into all of this list, Dave. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. No problem. Thanks again to Dave Howlett for the wide-ranging conversation about the best movies of the past 10 years. Please stay tuned for more episodes of Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast, in the days to come, talking to more people about the best movies of the decade. Regular listeners to this podcast will know I co-host another podcast called Lens Me Your Ears with local arts writer Stephen Cook. This week, we'll be talking about stealth Christmas movies. So check out Lens Me Your Ears on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find great podcasts. Thanks for listening to Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also listen to the podcast on Stitcher. I'm Reachable on Twitter at Flaw in the Iris if you'd like to talk about film or suggest a topic for the podcast. Theme music is by Mind's Eye. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>